So why is it, do you think, that 70-something years after World War II, we are still obsessed culturally with Nazis? <laughs> you know, there's a joke in historian circles. Uh, what does the H in the History Channel stand for? What? Hitler. Uh, the uh, Hitler Channel. Yeah, they're all about World War II. Now we have this rise of, of fascist groups again, too. Like, literal Nazis today. Like, is this really a thing? Yeah, how quickly we forget. Yeah, and well, and how how eager some people are to remember. Like, do you think this Nazi thing is is so powerful because it's an iconic and easily recognizable, just like a quick cipher for like evil that can just be conjured for so many purposes so quickly? Yeah, I think there's something to that, seeing like the big swastika. Right. Um, but, and, you know, I was just thinking about this. It's true that you and I were raised in an era where there's tons of movies about like punching Nazis in the face. <laughs> but I do wonder if there's something a little bit deeper and a little more complex going on, socially speaking. Mm, if only there was a contemporary show with a cult following that gave us the perfect launch pad to talk about this. If only... This is Weird Religion, a podcast for people who know religion is weird, but love it anyway. I'm your host, Brian Doak. I'm an author, professor, biblical scholar, and because I grew up in Wisconsin, I'm pretending to be a fan of the Milwaukee Bucks because they're in the playoffs right now. (laughs) I'm your host, Leah Payne. I'm a professor, historian, author, and I am a lifelong Portland Trailblazers fan. Rip city. I can get behind that. (laughs) Today, we're talking about the Amazon original, The Man in the High Castle, a sci-fi alternate history that considers the question, what if the Allies lost World War II? spies, collaborators, occupiers, and even antique stealers inhabit this world and invite viewers to consider who they'd be in this new version of reality. We also talk about Indiana Jones, the historical Jesus, and what is it with that creepy theme song? Join us. There's a lot of, uh, you know, there's a lot of film fascination with Nazis, though, from the silly to the serious. What's have, your favorite silly one? Well, silly. Have you heard of this film? It's called Iron Sky 2012. Oh, I think it's on Netflix. Vaguely? So, like, what has happened in the plot of this film, I think, is, like, Nazis have escaped after the war, and they're okay. actually hiding, and they're going to come make a comeback. Where have they been hiding? On the dark side of the moon. Naturally. Which is where you would with hide. Pink Floyd. Yep. And so and they, come, and and they make Waters. a comeback and there's like this battle. Okay. So that's that's like a silly thing. Oh. Do, Indiana Jones kind of made do you think that the, that was my example. Oh, was it? Do you think the Nazis were treated like in a silly way or a serious way? Well, I thought it was kind of lighthearted the treatment of the Nazis. Yeah, but to me it was it was like they were just the anti-American, the anti-indie, right? Like right. there was always some guy, and he usually had a British accent, if I remember right. Like right. that was the the Nazi. Oh, the collaborator. Uh huh. Yeah. Well, no, it was like somebody was supposed to be German, but if I oh. maybe they had a German <laughs> accent, I don't remember. But everyone speaks English for whatever reason. Yeah. But there's a funny yeah, right. scene in um the Last Crusade, which I think was the last good Indiana Jones oh, film. Oh, completely. Um, There's 100% agreement upon that. Right? Where world. where uh, Indiana Jones accidentally gets an autograph from Hitler. Yes! Yeah. Oh, I wa- that makes it kind of I silly. watched that show with my daughters. Oh, so what with, did they think? With uh, So this is with a nine-year-old and a five-year-old. They really? loved it. And Nova's favorite scene was the scene with the autograph from Hitler. <laughs> What did she? Well, she's she, smart. She, she probably was just, got it. Well, she was just really into that. And I think she just loves books. And like there was a book burning going on. Right. And like, 
I think she just realized like how tense the moment was because oh, there wow. you're like trying to escape Hitler, but then you're face to face with him. With the guy and See, his but little mustache. That's what I mean though about treating it in a very lighthearted way. I think yeah. the Indiana Jones franchise treated, or just the way their faces melt off at various points. It's like they die, but it's like a comical death. You never really see the horror of the Nazi what Nazis do in Indiana Jones. They're yeah. just trying to get artifacts for power kind it, of stuff. It's not like Schindler's List, which is like a no. meditation on the no, horror that's right. of it. But I think that one of the reasons why, and, and tell me what you think about this, is that in the 1990s when those movies were really big, mm-hmm. the like fascism seemed out of style, right? And yeah. there seems to yeah. be, it seems to be in style in certain, it, globally right now, which is, it makes it a lot more scary. Totally. I mean, there was a major like neo-Nazi or Nazi march in Germany in like 2018. I was just reading a, a, an op-ed about it in the New York Times from last year. Like that, that's terrifying. So this makes the the um, popularity and advent of Man in the High Castle. Oh yes, on I've Amazon. Been, I'm excited about it. Which this. I think is a much more serious meditation on fascism and the Nazi phenomenon. In fact, there's very little humor in the show. There's there's no <laughs> yeah. humor in Man in the High Castle. It is we not were, a funny show. We were actually brainstorming beforehand about like, okay, you know, we've tackled some really serious topics before. Right. Um, but the show, the medium makes it a little bit hard because most shows have a little bit of comic relief. And Something. there is very just anything like there is no daylight there are no flowers there's no joke really yeah. i mean i'm i'm casting about to find it maybe there was some moments where you could be like ah. yeah even the even the filming is like kind of gray oh most the, of the color times. palette is yeah yeah, Man in the High Castle has a very oppressive, domineering color palette. I guess uh, along with, mostly, yeah, yeah. I mean, just that's the way. I mean, there are a couple scenes where maybe they're out in nature, like or something, and you get some normal tones, but it's a very dark. Yeah. I mean, speaking of dark and kind of creepy, what about their opening sequence? Oh yeah, like where they Fatal show life. you the map. Like you get the idea right away. What is that song like? Edelweiss. <laughs> okay, so I can't believe that you don't. Know. <laughs> So you don't know this song? No. Oh why would gosh. I know that song? Oh, why would, where you? would okay, I? You're where gonna would know I get this song. song. You're gonna know this gonna song know someday. It. So well, you know why? Why? Because you have theatrical daughters. Oh. This song is a show tune. Oh. From Rodgers and Hammerstein's "Sound of Music." Oh. Yeah, and it's the song that at the end. Do you know anything about the "Sound of Music"? wait 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 wait. is sound of music okay is the sound of music have a scene where the girl there's like a little girl and she goes dancing by a lake and there are these little like there's a gate and it has these like horse head things okay the iconic scene of the sound of music this may be what you think you're thinking of is julie andrews on a mountaintop twirling around singing the hills are no 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 i'm thinking okay there's a there's a musical though because i stayed at this place called the schloss leopoldskron in salzburg where actually part of a famous movie musical was filmed. Oh, Gates? Yes, Gates. Oh, yeah, yeah. And there's like those little That's horse head gates. That's from when they're singing uh, Doe Deer, I okay. believe. But yes. I've, I've been there. <laughs> okay, so. I was there. I stayed. It's a hotel now. It's a castle, but a hotel. And I was stay, I stayed okay. there one time. Let's, when we do a myself. weird religion travel guide, that's going to be on We're the going, map. Yeah, oh, definitely. Yep. It's a beautiful hotel, by the way. But. So, um, but basically uh, that song is uh, prepared it purports to be the national song of Austria, I believe. And oh, okay. this guy who's resisting the Nazis sings it, Edelweiss. It's an American song, basically. It's by Richard Rodgers and Oscar Hammerstein. And so they use it because of that reason. Yeah, and be, and because people who are familiar with The Sound of Music, I thought was everyone, but apparently does not include Brian. Uh, <laughs> will be creeped out by it because it's actually this really sweet, beautiful anti-Nazi thing. This is yeah. like the tone that it's sung in, though, and then the Edelweiss. graphics. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. Yeah. I'm totally into it now. 
I'm into the word. I've, now I've unlocked the I key symbolism. I didn't think we were going to talk about the sound of music, but here we go. Well, the sound of music, Nazis, I guess it goes together thematically mm-hmm. in terms of what what's there. I, I totally get it now. I mean, okay, in this, I you, you've been addicted to this. I've been yeah. I've been binging on it lately. What is it that what is it that you like about this this series, this show? Gosh, well, I mean, as a historian, it's just really fun to imagine like what would things have been like. Um, mm-hmm. So the premise of the show is that, in fact, the United States and its global allies. Well, that makes it, that's very American-centric. Uh, the the uh, U.S., Britain. The Allies. The Allies did not win um, we lost World, World War, War II. II. We Al- lost. Alternate history. In fact, the Nazis um, and, so the Third Reich and the Japanese split up the United States, mm-hmm. except for this big chunk in the middle, kind of like the flyover states. No offense, flyover a, states. A no man's land. Yeah. Okay, uh, but Colorado, so Colorado's Coast, in there though too. Some beautiful mountain terrain yeah, is yeah. in the flyover area. That's right. Yeah, the West Coast is um, is belongs to Japan. The East Coast belongs to the Nazis. And then we have these characters who, the main character inadvertently stumbles into this resistance culture mm-hmm. by coming into possession of a, of a film um, that portrays what we, the audience, know is the actual history, which is like American tanks, you know, like retaking right. France or something. And this like that. isn't too spoilery. You find this out in the first episode of the oh, pilot yeah, this right is away. Like two so minutes you're like, in. so you're like, where did they get these films then of this mm-hmm. seemingly alternate history? And without giving away the entire series, although you know it's kind of your fault, I, I assume you know, oh listener, you got to watch. But it's like. There's kind of a sci-fi element going yeah. on. Yeah, because who has this? And so there's this mysterious figure, the man in the high castle. So all of that you could figure out in the first five minutes of the show. Right. Um, but to me, it's just, it's so much fun to imagine like, and of course you can't help but imagine who would you be in that? Did you think that at all? Like, oh, who would, would you I be, be in a the show? resistance person? Would you be? Yeah. I, I know. I know. I would want to think I would be in a resistance I've had too many just like boring bureaucratic beatdown moments in my workday life to think <laughs> of what I would actually be, which is like a total like just put my head down collaborator probably. Like I so I read last last fall I read yeah. Hannah Arendt's Eichmann in Jerusalem, which is like the classic oh, right. study of what it's like to just be Adolf Eichmann was just like this class. Just following he was, orders. He didn't particularly hate Jews. He didn't particularly love them. He was trying to advance his career. He was just kind of stupid, you know, and unfortunately, I think the kind of evil that, you know, and she used this famous phrase, banality of evil, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I fear for myself that I would become wrapped up in the banality of evil. Just like, it's not like I don't plot to do evil, but it's like you just end up trying to take care of your family and make money. And it's like, I think a lot of us are probably more in that kind of zone, but I'd like to think that I would be a resistor, but. I know. I mean, I think everybody would like to think that they would be, but yeah. um, one of the things that the show does well Obviously, it's not humor, but it does show a lot of the consequences mm-hmm. that would be that would come along with. Now, one of the questions that they ask, they invite you to ask, is Would you rather live in Nazi world or would you rather live in the Japanese right, world? Right. Did you think of like which like um, German or Japanese? So, to me, the Japanese world of the West Coast seemed freer, way somehow. better. Yeah, way better. Yeah, the Nazi world just seems crazy. You know, like just, it's all Nazi kind of stuff. Yeah. You know. You know what I thought was super creative about this? And um, this was just super fun was, so now if if you travel to Japan, I have not been to Japan, but 
um, my brother actually used to mm. do a lot of business there. And he's like the, like Japanese and American culture is so intertwined with one another, mm. like mm-hmm. in our popular culture and mm-hmm. our media and our mm-hmm. technology and in really fun and interesting ways. Mm-hmm. And they sort of imagine the same thing happening mm-hmm. in the, this alternate reality, but it happens kind of the opposite direction. So, like, <laughs> instead of the U.S. being this occupying force that it has been yeah. in, in Japan now and kind of a, like, a military, a perpetual military presence, that's reversed. And so, the uh-huh. Japanese are the military right. and cultural presence. And so, there's a character who, to me, is one of the most interesting characters. He is an antiques dealer. You know oh, the guy? antiques dealer. Yeah. yeah and, and they start forging antiques to like sell to people to make money and stuff. Yeah. That's yeah. a funny plot line, actually, because I like antiques and forgery and forgeries. It's definitely, he would be the academic person. Yeah. Which he's, he's yeah. very ambiguous I would be, I would morally. Be, okay. So I'm saying I would be him. That's who I would be. That's my character. <laughs> I probably I'm that would guy. too. It's I'd like, be what? Some You're random... trying to make money? Okay. I'm not sure. Just like, don't involve me. Yeah. I, <laughs> You know, that kind of thing. But then you could, if you're him, then you could stumble into doing something really good for humanity kind of on accident. Right. Well, if he's helping to fund the resistance through the manufacture of like Abraham Lincoln's cufflinks or whatever yeah. he ends up doing, resist, resist. something like that. So what religion thing did you think of when you Oh, watching? man. You know, the show is mostly devoid of religion in a way, but then it kind of starts to come out. Like you have like these kind of traditional Japanese forms like Shinto and stuff like that. And, and you have these churches that have been transformed into, into temples of various kinds. Mm-hmm. There's one scene in particular, I mean, the most explicitly religious scene that invokes theological ideas about Christianity occurs, I think in season two, I think episode seven, I shouldn't say I think, I know it's season two and I know it's episode seven. <laughs> I'm like, oh, just off the top of my head, season two, episode seven. There's a former, there's a former, so Frank stumbles in on a, on a, Frank is like one of the resistance guys. He's a reluctant yes. resistance guy, but he gets into it. Yeah. And um, he's Jewish too, which is an important plot point. He's Jewish. He's he, he's a rather, I think he's, he's not the most exciting character. He's a dull character in the series. Um, <laughs> I love like his girlfriend more uh, than him, but he, yeah. anyway, they're both resistance people. And anyway, there's a there's a former Christian pastor who's like on his knees in a warehouse. Do you remember this scene? Yes, I do. And Frank's kind of like, "Oh, what are you doing?" And he's kind of like, "Oh, I'm, you know." He, he basically he's gives this very surly. Yeah, he's very surly, and he gives this little speech, kind of like with tones that you know, institutional Christianity is a failure. Like Jesus never wanted it or needed it. He uses this phrase and says that Christianity is a dog collar that God doesn't, you know, that Jesus never really wanted. Um, and, yeah. you know, Frank's is something like, yeah, what about turn the other cheek? Like, isn't that part <laughs> of your message? And he's like, yeah, you know, the new, te-. he basically follows this line, like the New Testament has corrupted Jesus's message. That which, is super interesting. Which, here's a little scholarly tidbit. I mean, this, this, this notion that the New Testament has somehow corrupted the real Jesus's message itself, not that the New Testament gospels are the real Jesus message, but that they represent Jesus in some inauthentic way is a staple of New Testament scholarship for over the last century of research on the so-called historical Jesus project. So like this idea that you would excavate back to the real Jesus and the idea that, you know, in this moment, this like former priest or whatever he is, pastor, has excavated back in what Jesus really was, was like a revolutionary freedom fighter. You know, it's so funny that you bring that up because that— made me think of, I was a New Testament minor in my uh, PhD work. So oh, really? This, I didn't know that. Yeah, I, I studied with a really wonderful um, historical Jesus scholar. But one of the fun things that we used to do in her class was she would have all these pictures of 
different versions of Jesus, like mm-hmm. Jesus with the, what's the thing, like the bandolero? Wait, oh, is that what the- Like with bullets across bullets his across, chest? Like yeah, Jesus yeah. the revolutionary, yeah, 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 Jesus yeah. the, um, what? like there are all these different portraits of Jesus depending on the historian doing right. them with the idea that the gospels aren't, like that there's some sort of secret version of Jesus in, right, right. in kind of a way. But, um, and yeah, he definitely, when I when I was listening to him, I was like, he's so anti-institutional. He's so like surly. He's kind of, he's kind of got like a weirdly out of time baby boomer kind of perspective on like, there's the institution and, you know, like Jesus was against that. Right. But then it gets a little bit confusing when Frank brings up like, pretty traditional like Jesus-y words about turning <laughs> the other cheek. Well, yeah, I mean, this is something in, in the historical Jesus style of scholarship. There's this whole question of what are the criteria by which you would actually know a real statement of the historical Jesus? Like, I mean, one, one, um, one, one way is like dissimilarity. Yeah. So like if you can find something that Jesus is saying that seems off-putting or dissimilar to what you think a first century Jew would have or should have said. And then there's this whole debate about like, you have to create like a fake version of first century Judaism in order to have Jesus. I think AJ Levine actually is somebody who's done a lot of good writing on this. You have to create a fake version of Judaism, which is oppressive and bad to kind of like make Jesus look better. Yes. Some of this actually, just a funny little tidbit, like uh, AJ Levine writes about this, has to do with like Jesus calling God, Abba, or Father, acting oh, like— Oh, yeah. And then, she talks a lot about that. Because the scholarship—oh, this has a perfect tie-in. I did not even plan this, I promise. So, this whole thing about like, oh, Jesus called God Abba, Father, and that was like so intimate like and wonderful. Like it's a special word. It was a special word. Actually, it turns out Abba is just the Aramaic word for Father, and it turns out that Jews use the term Father for God, you know, not like— all the time, but like frequently enough that it actually wasn't that strange. Yeah. So where did people get this idea that Abba was so um, different? Well, this theological dictionary of the New Testament kind of popularized the view, edited in this particular article on Abba written by a guy by the last name of Kittel, who actually happens to have been a Nazi, like a literal Nazi, who was also a New Testament scholar who tried to make Jesus seem dissimilar from Judaism in that way. You know, I have a friend, it's funny that we're bringing up all these old memories because I studied, as you know, I studied with um, Amy DeLevine and a friend of mine wrote a dissertation on basically 19th century German Uh, New Testament scholarship mm-hmm. and Amy Jill Levine was on that committee and then also um, her spouse a guy named Jay Geller who does um, modern mm-hmm. Judaism and anyway uh, there is a lot of evidence to suggest that some of the Nazi claims were very well supported by a lot of German biblical scholarship in that era right. I, oh, yeah. I did not expect us to end up here Absolutely. in this conversation no, it's- <laughs> <laughs> I asked one question about religion and But anyway, yeah. but that scene, right, it has it has a lot in it. But this idea, yeah, the anti-institutional thing, it made me think like, okay, in a world like this, wouldn't there be like a thriving kind of like, I mean, the resistance kind of is the religion of the show. The resistance mm-hmm. itself is the, is the religion of the resistors. Like there's no kind of, I, I don't know, there's no real, you know, there, there are no churches in this world. Yeah, that's really true. And it's funny because 
this is maybe a common a common criticism that I have when I'm watching these type of shows is that a lot of media doesn't portray religion in a way that is realistic in the sense that most people have some sort of religious affiliation. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I mean, you could even you can make a really strong case that atheism is in and of itself a type of religiosity, but um, and it's certainly not true to the actual historical figures because. During the Nazi regime, in this history that we all know, <laughs> the non-alternate history, right. there were lots of people who were wrestling with like how to be religious and specifically Christian right. um, in the under the Nazi regime, right. um, and that doesn't really actually get covered at all. Um, I, I do think that there are some sort of civil religious things that are interesting mm. when you're in the when they're in you're in the Nazi uh, section of the. United States, I forget what they call it. But basically, like, there are these times where they're going on, like, a they have all these civil holidays, like, Mm -hmm. where they're celebrating things. So instead of a Fourth of July picnic, Mm -hmm. it's some sort of like we celebrate Himmler Day or something like that, you know? Um, And so they do things like when they're all praying together and stuff. There's some creepy things where they've shown that, like, how easily American. Um, rituals that we think of as Christian could be co-opted and yeah. just like a little Nazi like film be put over the top of them right, and you could right, practice them well. Right. Do you think that there's something about Christian about why are Christians sometimes drawn to fascism? Is there something inherent about Christianity that has like a kind of a fascist sympathy in it ideologically? Yeah. Is it is Christianity anti-fascist inherently? Is it just open to all kinds of different things? What what do you think? Oh man. Well I think it's I, I, I was thinking and I'm sure you're thinking of this person too, um, about Karl Bart when mm. when I was watching parts of Man in the High Castle because Lots of people think that, I mean, it's easy to say like, okay, Christianity is supportive of fascism. Christianity is not supportive of fascism. Karl Barth thought that um, that there was a type of Christianity that was mm. particularly susceptible um, and to— Karl Barth living in mid-20th century Germany, so yeah, German theologian. Early, so. Yeah, he lived through both world wars, and uh, he lived to see—he was trained as a liberal theologian, and he, to his horror, watched as li- the liberal theologians who trained him mm-hmm. um, were— very, very, like, unequivocally supportive mm-hmm. of the German state in mm-hmm. World War One, which was, like, most people think of, uh, or most historians talk about it as, like, one of the most pointless, horrifically destructive conflicts right. in, in human history, right. um, and World War Two, And he argued that basically there was something, there was some theological problem within liberalism mm-hmm. that made it especially susceptible to um, fascism. And really briefly, and this is really overgeneralizing, it's the idea that um, liberal theology was too much about imminence, about like this worldliness, mm. and it was too enmeshed in the kingdoms of this world. Right. So his solution was theological. You can tell he's a Protestant because everything's about theology, and there's like some idea that you could have this trickle-down theological effect. But basically, he said, you need a transcendent form of Christianity, like uh. this God that's entirely different from human experience, and like this, this kind of idea of the holy that's so far away right. um, uh, from the kingdoms of this world. Because otherwise, that that way you couldn't conflate so easily like a kind of civil religion with, you know. Right. It would, it would be harder to do. You'd be like, no, what we do in this world, you're not God, oh, empire. You're nothing. Like, this is just a passing. Whereas the Nazis want to say, oh, no, we are God. This is exactly the world order. Yeah, and he's trying to avoid, you know, the, the, there are horrific pictures where they're like, 
German Lutheran churches in Germany with swastikas like over the altar, right? And he's like, how can we avoid wow. that? Wow. Um, and I think that that's, I mean, I think that's an interesting explanation, um, but it is very Protestant in the sense where it's like the idea that there's good theology, if, if there's bad theology, and if you could just fix the bad the- theology, then right. you'd get the practice, right. you know, in order. But I don't think it's always that simple. Right. I'm interested in there. I, I was just listening to this story on the radio about um, this idea that, uh, well, statistically, Protestants were way more likely to support. Th- the Third Reich than mm. Catholics were oh, in really? Germany. Yeah, and the basic idea of of this analysis was that Catholics were, they had um, a non-magisterial or non-church government um, that was supported by like local, the local state. They had this idea of, um, they have basically the Pope in Rome, right? Mm-hmm. Like that that sort of transcends national boundaries. Mm-hmm. So they had a sense of authority that was outside of I Germany. See. I, see. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, it reminds me of another Protestant hero from from the era. I mean, Bart is certainly whether one likes him theologically or not, was a kind of Yeah, you know, I'm not a Bardian. Yeah. But Dietrich Bonhoeffer, for example, um, a famous figure who actually participated in a nineteen forty four plot that was made um famous in that movie of uh, Valkyrie with Tom Cruise. That's right. I don't know if that's how it was the made famous. The most American but version. Yeah, Tom Cruise <laughs> is trying to kill Nazis now. Um, but He's anyway. Like, I'm perfect for that role. The, yeah, the real the real plot, the, the, the July 20th plot against Hitler, the bomb in the building and all that stuff. Uh, Bonhoeffer supported that in some way. I'm not a Bonhoeffer scholar. I don't know exactly. I have a friend who is though. If he were here, that's he would tell right, us. That's right, Javier. Javier, shout out to Javier yep. Garcia. Great, great Bonhoeffer scholar. But um, Bonhoeffer participated in that plot. And so he must have seen like the like the Christian minister yeah. in in the in the scene from Man in the High Castle some kind of justification for violent resistance that yeah. it's not that it's not just pacifism, you know. Yeah. And so he was, a, you know. So I think of him like, and and you know, what all supported that? I mean, that's a rabbit trail we can't go down now. But like, um, you know, there's a way that, of course, Christians could get a kind of revolutionary theology out of things to even do something like try to assassinate a leader to try to change. That's an right. Outcome. Yeah. I mean, the it's one of those age-old questions. Like, do you engage in a little bit of evil to accomplish an overall good? Right. Like, some Christian theologians have said, yeah, it's actually right. okay for you to do that. Right. And some have said, no, it's never okay. Now, we, we um, are at a university that comes from the Quaker tradition, the Friends tradition, and mm-hmm. they would say, uh, no. <laughs> like, Bonhoeffer, no. Yeah, um, just never. Like, there's no way to do it. Although, yeah. you know, I wonder, okay, so that's, okay, this is one question that I'm left with, which is, you know, can, is pacifism the way to go or can you do, can you participate in the, in the evil in a sense in order to overcome it? There's also the sense of just trying to explain it, you know, this idea of like, how do we understand Nazis or how do we understand Nazi phenomenon? How do we understand the resurgence of Nazis today? And there's a social science we could go. I wonder, speaking of Bart, I happen to have, I didn't know you were going to bring up Bart. I have a Bart quote that I wanted to read to you to, to to get you to reflect on it. I'm Wait, t- can I say before you say that? Yes. Just for you, oh listener, most of you may know this depending on who you are, but Bart is spelled B-A-R-T-H, Barth. Oh, that's But this that's is crucial. just a public service announcement. <laughs> I embarrassed myself before I knew much about theology. Oh, really? Yeah, I didn't, nobody told me. So yeah. Bart, pronounced like that. Carl Bart. But looks like Barth. Pretend it doesn't have the H when you pronounce it. But You're welcome. Always write the H. That's that's crucial. So mm-hmm. this is a quote from Carl Bart, B-A-R-T-H, <laughs> the uh, the German theologian. Mm-hmm. Reflect on this in the light of Man in the High Castle. Where do you think Man in the High Castle falls Ooh, okay, on fun. the spectrum of this quote? Interesting. So Karl Barth in 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 um, 
in the church dogmatics, he writes about our attempts to explain evil, to mm-hmm. make sense of it. And he says, um, if we try to explain evil, if we, quote, accept it, incorporate it into our philosophical outlook, validate and exculpate it, and thus, if we are consistent, finally justify it. And what does this do? Not regarding it and treating it as null, but as an essential and necessary part of existence, hmm. unquote. So I think his argument there was to say, if you if you try to make sense of evil too much, what you end up doing is just accepting it. You basically let evil off the hook for being this unexplainable, um, you know, this this kind of, expl- no, I'm sorry, an explainable thing. And it really is really real and it's part of our existence and we just kind of have to deal with it and so on. Whereas I think what he wanted to argue was, no, evil is in fact nothing and it's to be, you know, resisted in some other way. That's interesting um, because it makes me actually think of Hannah Arendt again. And as I understand it, she came under a lot of criticism. Mm-hmm. Um, if if she lived in the Twitter world, she would have been like oh, man. killed on Twitter yep. uh, for her argument because it made the Nazis in, in many ways very human. Like it made mm-hmm. you ask yourself, what is different about me that would make me not right. engage right. in the Third Reich? And I think there's something really valuable in that because it it makes you ask yourself and it makes you ask really hard questions about the entire society. Mm-hmm. Um, and if there's a criticism that I have of of Man in the High Castle, it's that it doesn't engage in e- explaining evil enough. Oh, okay. So like you, it doesn't you, talk about the benefits of, yeah. of en- engaging. I evil. mean, in that sense, you'd say maybe then that Man in the High Castle is more in the sense of like they just they're just going to fight evil. That's just what we're doing. If you're, if you're a character man in the High Castle, you're not going to sit around. If you're a good guy. Yeah. If you're a good guy, you're not going to be like reading and thinking and stuff like that. You're going to act. Yeah. I mean, they don't give the characters a lot of time for it, it no. seems like. No, it's it's an action-packed show. Yeah. Well, this is why I think, in a way, I, I felt so stultified when you asked which character I would be in the show, just because— Yeah, what, which one? Um, well, just— Well, yeah, you're the antiques yeah, guy. Yeah, I'm the yeah. antiques dealer. Yeah, yeah. That's, I'm the antiques dealer. <laughs> but that's why I felt so stultified, partly because it's like, I think I am— maybe somebody more who's like cerebral and I'm sort of like hesitant and am I a person Mm. really of action? And there are so many different kinds of characters in the show, but they all are acting certainly in a way that's very, you know, often violent, but uh, you know, they're, in fact, they're running around transferring themselves to different dimensions somehow. That's right. So there's a sci-fi, there's a sci-fi element in the show, just, just like thinking themselves into other dimensions. I, I'm totally lost on that aspect. I yeah, think a lot of us are, it's but it's not the stronger part of it. It's just the alternate little, history. It's just a little weird, but I, I would like to do that. I don't know what, what, um, what character do you think you'd, Oh man! Who's, who's, who are you? Of course, every I would of course want to be the Juliana. Julian, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think any woman watching the <laughs> show would be like, oh yeah, I hope I'd be her. I'm her. I actually think that I'd probably be more like there's this, and I I hate to even say this. There's a character who is like her friend, sort of when she's getting um, when she claims asylum in Nazi in the Nazi yeah, yeah, yeah. regime, yeah. who's just kind of this side character who mm-hmm. inadvertently ends up helping the resistance, you know? Uh, but it, she's kind of a side I, I don't think, I think the nature of being an academic is that you kind of stand, in your mind, you sort of stand outside right. and try to like right. observe. And you're right that this show is about people who just, for whatever reason, have been forced into making an action or being an actor. I think I hope that I'd just be like if not a resistor, maybe working in that cafe in no man's land. I'm gonna try to think myself into another dimension. Let's do it. Ready? One, two, three, go. 
Hey, thanks for listening, weirdos. We love all our weirdos, near and far. For extras and extra nerdy Easter eggs on subjects covered in this episode, don't forget to click on the hyperlinks in each episode's description on our website, weirdreligion.com. And join our social media conversations about religion and pop culture on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Weird Religion. And we're YouTubing now, so find us on YouTube. YouTube us. No. <laughs> These episodes were produced at Stone Bear Studios, engineered by Luke DiLorenzo and executive produced by Troy Wellstad. Our theme music is by Cassie Blum and our album artwork by John Williams. A special shout out to Portland Seminary for sponsoring the season and to trigger the studio dog. When you podcast, podcast with us. Bye. Bye.